Australia unmasked. The Crown is the enemy of the people. And the RBA control battle is the fight of and for our lives. Coming up on this week's episode of The Citizen's Report. Welcome to The Citizen's Report. It's the 14th of December 2023. I'm Robert Barwick and I'm joined today by Citizens Party researcher and editor Richard Barden. Welcome Richard. Thanks Robbie. In this week's show we're going to be be talking, sorry about the stumble there, we're going to be talking about the incredible implications of the rulings made in the David McBride trial because they basically mean everything you thought you knew about how your country works is wrong um, and it's people need to take this on board it's quite shocking and we've got to it's got to re, um, give us the resolve to change the system and we now have Richard an inquiry into the uh, Reserve Bank reforms bill so we're going to talk about that and really bring it home for people why this is so important it is the fight of our lives this is the most important political issue going around but if you leave it up to the media etc they'll just make it out to be a, a dry technical issue and it's not, right? And we're going we're gonna to bring that home to why that's the case and why we need everybody to participate in this inquiry. But before we begin, remember, let's get, help us get the message out. And the best way to do that is like the show, subscribe if you're not a subscriber, and remember to ring the bell icon, share it widely on social media um, to all your friends and family, etc. cetera. Um, uh, what else? Comment, make comments below so we can get the conversation started. And we also have a donate button below because um, we're not commentators, we're activists, we talk about the things that we're trying to change. Um, You don't don't tune into the Citizens Report to get the latest on the gossip of Brittany Higgins and Bruce Lerman. Well, there you go, I've mentioned it. (laughs) That's not what this show's about. We don't get distracted by sideshows. We want to change the system. And we've identified what are the important points where the power really lies in Australia, where it's used wrongly and that's what we're trying to change and if you can support that please do um but with that said let's get into it oh one last thing in case i forget to mention at the end of the show because we're coming up against a deadline (laughs) uh this is the last episode of the citizens report for 2023 so we'll have a few weeks break we'll we we may have there'll be some other stuff circulating around etc but so the first show of the new year will be the 12th of january um, and we'll be really gearing up everything for the fights into the new year to continue on the good work that we've done this year. Um, um, and if we have time, we'll have more to say about that at the end of the show. All right, but otherwise, let's get into it because, in my opinion, what we're about to go through is absolutely explosive and it should shock every Australian to, it, to their core. Australia unmasked, the Crown is the enemy of the people. Now, as a staunch Republican, and you even an Irish Republican, <laughs> that headline is all we need. That, 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 we already knew that. Yeah. But, but if, um, if we needed proof, we've now got it. So what we're talking about is the true legal status mm-hmm. of Australia has been exposed, Richard, and that's thanks to the courage of David McBride because he refused to cut a deal. Now, I interviewed him at this table in 2022. And I asked him about this. So here's 
by now, most viewers should know there was a trial a month ago in Canberra. Um, we're going to talk about that because you've written a really good article about the implications of it. But David McBride made it clear to me in that interview that he had had messages delivered to him, right? If you cut a deal, we can make this go away. And he had knocked them back. He had no intention of cutting a deal for some token, you know, 18-month suspended sentence, whatever. He wanted to put the system on trial, right? Because he knows what he was exposing and he wasn't trying to... He's actually been... There's been some silly commentary trying to split hairs over his mm. true motivation. Um, oh, he wasn't really motivated in exposing war criminals. Well, he wasn't really motivated in exposing Australian soldiers. He was exposed. He was motivated in exposing the system yeah. that covered that allowed the cover up of that stuff as well. Yeah, created the right? circumstances for the crimes <laughs> to be almost inevitable, and then covered exactly. them up and scapegoated some, and gave others Victoria crosses. Mm. Right, that's what he was trying to expose. And the commanding officer at the time, General David Hurley, who's now the Governor General, and I, I got to know David first on Twitter, and man, the whole time I've known David, he has been at David Hurley, the Governor General of Australia. See you in court, buddy. I'm dragging you into court. Um, he really wanted to put the system on trial. So he had his trial a month ago, and we covered that at the time, but there's been some really important analysis since then of what the rulings mean. Um, because it has actually exploded the myth of Australian democracy. And I'll just try and summarise what that myth is, which is and, and it, the myth, Richard, is contrary to written law, and you can talk about that in a minute. Written law actually tells us the truth of Australian democracy, but we have this way of we're told by the experts, oh, that's by convention, but by convention that doesn't matter. What we have is the monarch is a mere figurehead, um, when Australians vote, the people elect politicians to serve us, the people, and our consent as the people is the source of sovereignty in our system. That's how mm. the system... We are an independent, democratic nation here in Australia. Oh, really? So, um, what I want Richard to do is give is explain, from the analysis that's since subsequently been done on the trial how this trial has blown all that out of the water. And the first, and it hinges, doesn't it, Richard, on the ACT Supreme Court's response to David McBride's key defence. Hmm. Um, what was that defence and what can we conclude from the court's response? All right, so uh, David McBride argued that his duty as a soldier of Australia was to Australia. Yeah. The people of Australia, you know, because the people are the nation, right? Yeah. Um, and so he argued that, well, crimes were committed. He took it through all the proper channels. It got nowhere. He got stonewalled. You know, everything that was happening kept happening. Um, he, he blew the whistle through all the internal processes. He exhausted all of that. And so then he, uh, by his own admission, stole Commonwealth property, paper. Pink paper. Pink paper, specifically, to print these documents on. And he took them to journalists. And a year or two later... It, came out, and it wasn't the story that he wanted told what came out, um, but it was at least part of it. Yep. Um, everything he said has been vindicated, um, you know, everything that's come out in public so far has been vindicated by the Brereton Inquiry, the, the report, yeah, there were 
there's clear evidence of war crimes and all, you know, of course nobody's been convicted yet. Well, one guy has, but... So that act though of breaking the law yeah. to go public outside of the defence structures, yeah. when he walked into court that day, last month, he said, I serve my, my country. country, who do you serve, Mr Albanese, right? So in his... Yeah. David's been explicit. He did this as an act of service to Australia, meaning yep. the people of Australia. Yeah, because... And he argued that, yeah, that's what his duty... That's what his duty as a soldier of Australia was about. So how did the court read that? Well, the court... The, uh, the prosecutor argued, um, and it's... It, she said that the only that the oath of enlistment McBride and every other soldier, sailor, Air Force, everybody, had taken wasn't to serve Australia. It's the oath says that that you will quote well and truly serve Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II as it was at the time. Now it would be King Charles III, her heirs and successors according to law, and resist her enemies. And so the prosecutor argued that to interpret serve to mean to act in the public interest is to turn on its head service to king or queen. Nowhere in the oath does it refer to public interest or that a soldier must act in the public interest, end quote. And so the judge accepted that argument. That's, uh, that's, that's the key. So yeah. it's bad enough the government argued what you just said. The judge upheld that argument. Yeah, because according to the letter of the law in the Defence Act, um, I believe it's called, that um, McBride, by his own admission, broke to get this stuff out. Um, he said, the judge said, quote, there is no aspect of duty that allows the accused to act in the public interest contrary to a lawful order, end quote. And so there, that's it. No defence. No public interest defence. And what was shocking and deservedly got headlines at the time was that just trashed the whole popular understanding of the Nuremberg precedent. Yeah, everything since 1945 has been, no, just following orders. I mean, it's all you need to say is I was just following orders and everybody, everybody understands what you're talking about. That's not an excuse. Yeah. That you have a, a moral duty beyond your black letter legal duty, you know, not to follow orders that contravene other laws that you know the laws of war that were established especially post like at and at and post the Nuremberg trials yeah now um so the question is you know if you're an Australian citizen and you're learning this for the first time or in the last month you've learned this for the first time how shocked really are you or or are you morally brushing it under the carpet thinking well okay you know um what can I do about that you know, there's, that's too big for me or, or maybe this is just legal mumbo-jumbo. No, no, no. We, these are, this is why I used the word before, myths, right? Mm. We are, we've had, we've, in this post-World War II period, we've had this drilled into us that here you had, in fact, everyone understands the black and white of history is the Nazis and Hitler defined pure evil, mm -hmm. right? We were the goodies and we were the opposite of those guys. And we laid down a foundation for that at the Nuremberg Trials. And in fact, um, this week, ABC ran a doco. Um, uh, and I'll talk to the producer later, see if we can put the title on the screen. It might be on ABC um, iView. People can still watch it. The, the, the youngest American prosecutor at Nuremberg was 27. He's still alive. He's nearly 100. Robert Jackson. No, no, um, uh, no, a Jewish guy. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Frank, Frank is... Anyway, I, I, I don't want to butcher his name. 
Um, so he was telling the story of prosecuting the Nuremberg trials, right? Mm. And this this whole principle of knew or should have known, yeah. and just following orders. Why? You know why it was seen as morally reprehensible at the time that that was an excuse, right? Mm. And so this is what we grew up with. And if these things mean anything to you, when you find the system is not adhering to it, in fact, the opposite, you have to question everything. And so we haven't even begun to scratch the surface yet in this conversation. But before we go on, let's just re- revisit from the film, the 1961 film, Judgment at Nuremberg. I want to play a very short clip here about the oath that Nazis took to Hitler. And listen to the wording of the oath very carefully, because we're going to compare it to something. Run the clip. Would you read the oath from the Reichslag Gazette, March 1933? I swear that I shall be obedient to the leader of the German Reich and people, Adolf Hitler, that I shall be loyal to him, that I will observe the laws, and that I will conscientiously fulfill my duties. So help me God. Everyone swore to it. It was mandatory. So that oath, Richard, in a, in a funny way, think about it, it's seemingly benign. It's a, I swear to be loyal to the Führer, the leader, mm. right? Um, it, it wasn't more bloodthirsty than that. I, I swear to follow the law. But that was the oath that mm. all these Nazis said, well, we were just following orders. The leader had said, so we yep. were following orders. And under the letter of German law at the time, yep. uh, um, the... Uh, the leader's word was law, and therefore was, everything Hitler, every order Hitler was, gave was, was law. Legal, was legal, exactly. No, exactly. Okay. Now, so that was Nazi Germany, but we're not Nazi Germany. Well, why don't we compare that oath that you mm. just saw? Now, I have to confess here, I'm making an assumption that what we just heard in that movie clip is the actual oath mm. in English. I'm pretty sure it would be. If someone can correct me, if someone can correct me, go ahead, put it in the comments beneath. But that that was the essential of the oath. So I've got a few examples to compare it to. Um, The first one is when Queen Elizabeth died and King Charles was sworn in, all the parliaments around the world to, to which the crown is sovereign had to re swear their oaths. Mm. So I've got a clip here of the Victorian Parliament, a group of parliamentarians in the Victorian State Parliament swearing this oath to King Charles. Listen to the wording as they say it. I swear by Almighty God that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance. That I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to His Majesty and His Majesty's heirs and successors according to law. To His Majesty and His Majesty's heirs and successors according to law. To me, Richard, what's striking about that by comparison to what we saw in Judgment of Nuremberg, it ain't much different. You could, if you change the name, it would, you could um, legitimately translate that to be basically the same thing. And we're highlighting that because this is the essence of the oath. Now, we, we've, got, we've got examples of the oath as said by members of parliament, right? This is the essence of the oath that the military take as well, right? It's mm-hmm. very, very similar. But just for a, now I don't have, the, apologies for this. This is one of those clips I filmed on my phone off the television and I put it on Twitter because I was struck at the time. This is the Governor General, David Hurley, then the, command, the guy that, that was the commanding 
general in Afghanistan when, when David McBride did what he did. This is him in 2022 leading an, a, um, some event in front of Parliament House about the new King Charles. Right? I've just got a few seconds, but listen to the wording of what he says. And humble affection, we promise him faith and obedience. Um, so what you got there is the same principle. There's the crown, or the, in particular the king, King Charles. Hurley is expressing on behalf of Australia our obedience to the king, right? And again, now we're getting into the oath, into the, 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 the military side of things as well, right? Because mm-hmm. he's, the, he's, the, he's the commander-in-chief in practice. The, the king's the commander-in-chief in reality, but he's the commander in, Well, I think he's the commander-in-chief in reality. On, as the king's representative. Mm-hmm. Now, just to make this clear, though, I've got one more clip, and this is a more, more humorous one. Um, and I don't know, I, people might have mixed feelings about this particular clip because it's Lydia Thorpe. And Lydia Thorpe is, um, uh, you know, someone who is a polarising figure, mm-hmm. right? But the only reason I'm playing this clip is because I was looking for an example of members of parliament in the federal parliament being sworn in. Because I remember the first time I saw a swearing in of members of parliament. What struck me is when they say the oath, there's no mention of serving the people of Australia whatsoever. It is all about loyalty to the Queen, or in this case, or or the King. The the, the one for Lydia Thorpe is the Queen. Um, It's all about loyalty to the Queen. Right now, in Lydia Thorpe's case, though, she's a, 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 a um, what do they call it? She's part of the Black Sovereign yeah. Aboriginal movement, etc. So she tried to make a political point, and I thought it's worth playing the whole clip um, because someone has kindly put it in subtitles in this version of of YouTube that we've got here. Um, you will see hear someone in the background saying, "If you don't say it, you won't be a senator." Like she had no choice mm-hmm. but to, she'd been elected, but she had no choice but to say this. That's what she's made. The people sitting behind her, other senators, make it very clear. You have to say this. You've got no choice, mm-hmm. right? That's quite striking. But so enjoy the circus of it. Um, and then before you get too judgmental about Lydia, and we're not Lydia Thorpe fans at all, though I don't hate her as much as most other people probably do, um, in that other, if you, go, if you go on YouTube yourself and watch the judgment at Nuremberg trial and that part with the, in the court scene where they're talking about the oath, the, 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 the lawyer goes after that man on the stand and says, you did not, you should have seen coming the disaster that national, national socialism was bringing to Germany. You should not have, you had a choice not to swear that oath. If more people stood up and refused to swear the oath, it wouldn't have happened. That was the point made in that court. Well, by that standard, you might want to judge Lydia Thorpe a little bit differently because she did, at least in this, try and resist. Anyway, roll the tape. Senator Thorpe, please come to the table to make and subscribe the affirmation of allegiance. Please recite the affirmation on the card handed to you. I, Sovereign Lydia Thorpe, do solemnly and sincerely affirm and declare 
that I will be faithful and I bear true allegiance to the colonising Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Senator Thorpe. I'm going to wait for quiet. Senator Thorpe, you are required to recite the oath as printed on the card, so please recite the oath. Uh, Senator Thorpe, Senator Thorpe, order. I, Lydia Thorpe, do solemnly and sincerely affirm and declare that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, her heirs and successors according to law. Uh, Senator Thorpe, please sign the test roll and Senator's roll. Mm. It's, uh, it's funny they mentioned that, you know, if you don't say it, you won't be able, you won't be a senator. Yeah. Well, uh, it, I happened to have uh, taken note many years ago that uh, Sinn Féin, the Irish, um, yeah. Irish uh, Republican Party in the north, the British occupied Northern Ireland, yeah. they win seats in every election. And they never take them they up. Never they take they never go to Westminster because they're not going to take that oath because no. it's basically the same oath. Yeah, no, that's true. They they could actually be decisive in votes in Westminster, yeah. but they refuse they to go there. They stand on principle. They won't no. go there. Exactly. They get elected. They have a right to sit, but they won't do it. Um, and of course, now Sinn Fein, given you raised it, has with that principle, they've gone from being a marginal party to now essentially the government of mm. um, Northern Ireland. Um, all right. Yeah, so, okay, but back to the main point. The last part of that, when Lydia Thorpe did swear the oath properly, but deliberately make fun of some of the words, like sincerely, I think she's probably making fun of the word heirs. Mm, all I, right? would, I would assume um, so. Heirs and, six, heirs and successors, right? So, so she swore an oath to Queen Elizabeth to be loyal to Queen Elizabeth personally and King Charles, and if it's not King Charles... Pedophile Prince Andrew, right? If, he's, if Charles gets knocked off and the boys get knocked off or whatever, he's in the line there somewhere as well. She, he's part of the heirs and successors. That's what she had to swear an oath to. That's what all members of parliament swear to when they're sworn in. No service to the people of Australia whatsoever. And this gets to the nub of what we're talking about. So, um, Richard, the person that, we're, that you wrote about in your article, back to the David McBride trials, mm. Dr... Um, Bronwyn Kelly, she's the founder of the non-profit organisation Australian Communities Futures Planning and she did this really important analysis mm. of what, those, what that means. So just give us a sense of, of the conclusions that she drew from her analysis of what the, that essential ruling meant that there is no, uh, there is no um, obligation to serve the people of Australia, no. you must just follow orders. Yeah. So if there is no public interest... If there's no obligation to the public interest, um, and now all that oath means is that you you swear to follow the orders um, of or passed down to you as though from the crown, the king, yep. the queen, whoever. Well, one of those enemies potentially is the people of Australia, and you're you know you're you're being she says you're being offered a binary choice, and yep. most people probably wouldn't have thought of that when no. they sign up to be soldiers, and if and as she says, if they did. We should probably question their fitness to serve in the first place if they thought, if they realised that and took the oath anyway. 
Um, but yeah, they're basically if the if the if the king now or the governor general who was presiding over the cover up of these war crimes back then when McBride was in Afghanistan and blew what he blew the whistle on, if he gives that order, according to the ACT Supreme Court, every soldier is morally obliged to turn his weapons on us. Yeah. Anyone, any one of us, any one of the viewers, anyone. Doesn't matter. And that may sound extreme, but the point is if there's no if there's no legal slash moral legal ob- obligation of the Defence Force to serve the people of Australia, and it's solely the Crown, and the Crown goes rogue, <laughs> if yep. you want, you can think of it like that, that is what the soldiers are supposed to do. Yeah, as Bronwyn Kelly puts it, uh, highlighted the quote here, she says, it is now out in the open that Australia's armed forces aren't there to protect and defend Australians. They're there to protect and defend the King or Queen, of a foreign country, no less, and more than that, to take up arms against the people if she or he orders them to do so. And uh, that's it. Hence the, hence the title. The Crown, that was her headline of her article. It's out in the open. The Crown is the enemy of the people. Yeah. Um, now, she also said that the judgment exposed the myth that the Australian people are the source of sovereignty, mm. which is this myth that people have in their heads. Yeah, and she quoted in her article this uh, constitutional lawyer, Helen Irving, who assumed as much, she said, by saying that, uh, quote, the Constitution rests upon the sovereignty of the people. Their consent is the ultimate authority for government, and a core part of the principle of democratic sovereignty is that power must not be derived from another source. But the Crown and the executive government by extension, because they're ministers of the Crown, they serve at the Queen's pleasure, they take that, or the King's, they take that oath that we just saw. Yeah. Um, says, yeah, it has no obligation to serve or protect the people. It has no obligation to anything other than itself. And by extension, it's neither to its armies. And, they th- and then, so that's pretty clear. The, uh, one, the, as you said, we, we already discussed, the, the court's interpretation of this oath essentially sets the crown against the people. There's binary choice, mm-hmm. right? But it's also true. The principle holds true for politicians' oaths as well, like the ones that we have yeah. shown. So when you're assuming those people elected to parliament are there to serve you, they're not serving you. Their oath shows you. Now, can I say, like, informally, of course, personally, their motive, they're trying to serve you. Of course yeah. they are. Most, but as we're going to talk about in the next segment, when it comes to the real um, core issues of where power really lies, when the system, when the, when the people in the system come up against that, and they face a moral choice. Do I try and change this system that's rigged against the people or do I conform to the system? That's when this stuff comes to bear, Yeah. right? That's when a David McBride had to decide, do I break the law at a conscience for, and a sense of serving the people or do I conform? And he had to risk everything to do that, mm. right? And not, there's the, only a small handful of people do it. And so with the members of parliament... I mean, man, I know most of them. They're not evil people, but I tell you, none of them. (laughs) Well, I don't know. You never know. Um, I'm always inspired by um, Charles Dickens' story, A Tale of Two Cities, how Mm. the the, 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 the cad, the wastrel, the guy who's just a a blithering drunk, at the end redeems himself by doing Mm. something really profound and and saving the the family. Um, It's a great story. Go read it. 
so you know there's always that 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 capacity for human redemption but for most of these people no no when push comes to shove they will conform to the system because to not conform is too terrifying for them yeah and especially labor you know you said before knew or should have known yeah labor knew this Exactly. Give us the Whitlam pre- the, Goff, from Whitlam's time. Yeah, Gough Whitlam was 48 years in one week before <laughs> David right. McBride's uh, ultimate <laughs> guilty plea to a reduced uh, indictment because they removed his defence mm. and he'd proved his point. Um, yeah, the Crown dismissed the Whitlam government on fabricated pretext. There was no stoppage of supply. He had the money. To, it was just an excuse because he threatened Crown interests. He threatened... US and British strategic interests, some of them even unwittingly, because they hadn't told him, we went through this on the show a few weeks ago, yeah. they hadn't told him what it was they were doing, and therefore he didn't know he was threatening these, right. these operations, and they just said, you're fired, but that's, get out. And the resources stuff was more witting, Australian control of resources. But what, yeah. the, what the Labor Party was able to conclude at the time was, hang on, this is actually all written yeah. in law. And uh, <laughs> one of their rising stars at the time, who later became Attorney General, he's a QC, or KC now, I guess, or SC if he's in... Anyway, Gareth Evans, top barrister, Attorney General, Foreign Minister, many other roles. He wrote an article, he went and looked at this, and he wrote an article in April of 1976. And his conclusion was that, quote, if the literal language of the Constitution were to be believed, the Governor-General had all the status and power of an Ottoman Sultan, he could, for example, dismiss at will both parliaments in section 5, ministers in section four, uh, 64, refuse to appoint any ministers at all, allow parliament to meet but one day a year and not spend any money when it did, and take over the personal control as commander-in-chief of the army, the navy and the air force. That's what, what's written in law. That's, what's, and that, that's in our constitution. And that's, what, that's the power that general... Now, Governor-General David, General, David Hurley has. now has, yeah. and you wonder why they put this argument up and accepted it against McBride. Yeah. So this is, the, this is you know, to me, the, um, Richard, this is a moment of truth for Australians. Like, you've got to, you, 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 you learn this truth about the system and you think, well, what do we do about it? Do we just, oh, do we just shrug and say, oh, well, you know, um, it seems to have worked fine so far. Occasionally there's these little skirmishes in extreme circumstances or whatever, or do you actually dig down and try and change it? And again, in the next segment, we're going to talk about the reserve bank powers because there was a time when we didn't have a two-party duopoly. We had we had a two-party system where the other party, the Labor Party, mm. really did try and fight this stuff. They actually had government and opposition. Absolutely, and they fought hard at every step of the way to assert the power and the sovereignty of the people over the system, mm. and they had to take on these structures but once they sold out to the banks, they've stopped doing yep. that. Yep, and now it's a Labor government doing all of this. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the system stands exposed, unmasked, and um, we'll get on to the next segment in a, now because we're going to be talking about the, the, proce- you know, the process of, of renewing the fight to actually change it, to make it. You, 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 don't, um, you don't change a system like this without asserting the power of the people. But what does that mean in practice, right? And that's what the Citizens' Party is always trying to focus on. All right, so, Richard, thanks for that research um, and writing that article. That'll be on the website that people can look at in more detail, and I think there's a link there to um, the longer Substack article yeah. that, that Dr. Kelly um, wrote. Yeah, well worth reading. Recommend everyone Definitely. check that out. Definitely. Okay, 
So, final segment of the year. RBA control battle is the fight of and for our lives. So this has been our theme for the last um, month or so. The RBA reform or Reserve Bank reform bill, Treasury Laws Amendment, Reserve Bank Reforms Bill 2023, which was introduced on Thursday the 30th of November. On uh, Thursday the uh, was that 7th of December was referred to a Senate Economics Legislation Committee inquiry. So last week on the show, we said we'll let you know if there's an inquiry. We do have an inquiry. We had hoped it would be deferred until after Christmas. So the inquiry is going to run over Christmas, which means it's not, the, it's not optimum, but... Don't worry, if, if, if this is deliberate um, interference, fine. Um, we will um, mobilise people anyway. So what we're about to go through, be prepared, listen carefully so you can write a submission because it's essential that you write a submission. Write an email from you as a citizen to this inquiry saying you must not give up these powers. These You must, as the Citizens Party Chairman Ann Lawler put it, um, and I'm quoting her, these powers that are going to be legislated away must be used, not removed. That's the message we have to send. These powers must be used, not removed. So what are we talking about? Um, We're talking about the power, well, three essential powers, the power of the governor of the treasurer of the day, representing the government of the day, the elected government to overrule the reserve bank governor. That's in section 11. The power in section 36 of the reserve bank to give credit guidance to the private banks in terms of volume and say, stop lending so much in this area, start lending in this, in this area. Stop lending, you know, don't lend as much for, ha- cut back what you're lending for housing, lend more for small business. That's what the, the RBA legislation at the moment allows the RBA to do and they haven't been doing it. And finally, section 50 is um, the power where the RBA can actually tell the private banks charge more interest on this area and less interest in this area. So, for instance, if you if the Commonwealth Bank's into margin lending, mm. and they probably are for all I know, <laughs> um, and margin lending is where someone goes and borrows money to put in the share market, right? The Commonwealth Bank can say, sure. The, or the Reserve Bank can say, yeah, if you're going to make that kind of lending, it's 15% interest. But if you're lending to genuine first home buyers, right, um, 4% interest. Or if you're lending to small business people who are, who are actually doing something industrial, 4% interest. They can, they can actually make that kind of differentiation, mm-hmm. right? And of course, if they did that kind of, those latter two sections, section 36 and section 50, if they did that, they could more effectively address inflation mm-hmm. and, and things in problems like supply chain problems. You know, we, oh, there's this, we have this issue here. Um, on the supply chain, that's it's like a bottleneck. It's making things more expensive. We don't have enough training. We don't have enough skilled people to operate it properly, etc. All right. Well, here, here's some more money. Let's mm. invest in that. The RBA could do that kind of thing, right? So those are the three sections that are all being legislated away. And what we have to fight hard for is to make sure that what if this bill does go through, because the other things are probably not as important. That it is amended so those changes are dropped and they the powers remain. So why is it important? Well, short answer, it controls our daily lives. And I wanted to um, quote now from the great Ben Chifley, the man who legislated the power in 1945. I've got a page of quotes here from the 1937 Banking Royal Commission dissenting opinion that he wrote. 
um, because he endorsed most of the things in the Banking Royal Commission, but he wrote a dissenting opinion to give his views on banking. And he makes some really important points. In it. I'm not going to read it all, but I'll just say, so this is what he said about when we talk about banking, why it's so important. Banking differs from any other form of business because any action, good or bad, by a banking system affects almost every phase of national life. A banking policy should have one aim, service for the general good of the community. The making of profit is not necessary to such a policy. <laughs> and, that's, and that's where, of course, he freaked everybody out. But the... Um, but it's true, and, and, and if you think that's because he's an old socialist saying that, I remember the guy who was in charge, Richard, of the, um, the TARP bank bailout in America, the trouble, 700... Troubled Assets Relief Program, relief the original program, yeah. 2008 bailout. Now, it's been a while, I, I, I forget his name offhand, but he, um, not the one who wrote the report, but the guy, the ex-Goldman ex Sachs bank, whose job was it actually to actually do the administrating of it. Um, he ended up concluding... After those bailouts, he said, look, commercial banks should essentially be treated just like utilities, mm. like, like a big nuclear power station. Um, regulated to death, kept super safe. Profit is not what it's there for. Mm. And that, that's, a, that's a, an American Wall Street capitalist saying that, right? Mm. Because once a crisis hit and they saw, you know, it was like, oh, this is so bad and it could have been much worse. Um, you know, maybe we need to rethink this. But anyway, Chifley, the, the, the reason I read that quote is what Chifley was saying. Banking affects almost every aspect of daily lives, of national lives. That's why this, is, this issue is so important. Um, what Jim Chalmers is proposing to do is give away his power to overrule the RBA governor. Sorry, to overrule the RBA governor. Now, who's the RBA governor? Well, it's Michelle Bullock. And well, who is Michelle Bullock? Well, not to single her out because she's in a long line of these people, mm -hmm. right? But she is a technocrat. And her, what she does is serve the domestic and international banks and the Bank for International Settlements. What, they have, what, the, what the central banking fraternity has done over, and it's always been their goal, what they have set up is a system that serves the system itself, not the customers of the system. Now, we, I ranted about this last week, um, the, the principle of, um, you know, uh, no, I was, on, I was on Martin North's show when I talked about this. Um, when you have a financial system that's bigger than every other sector of the economy, which is what Australia has, mm -hmm. right, you think, you've got to think, well, hang on, What's it for? Isn't, isn't it there to serve the other sectors? Isn't, isn't the job of the finance, financial sector to make sure the other sectors work properly, right? The, the actual physical sectors like manufacturing, mm -hmm. agriculture, construction, infrastructure, isn't that its job? But no, it's now bigger than all those other sectors. Mm -hmm. um, and that's like having a restaurant that can seat 20 people with 200 staff, right? Mm -hmm. if, you go, if you ever see a restaurant like that, you go, what are all those staff doing? If, if, there, if there's only 20 people can be sitting in the restaurant at any time, well, that tells you there's something structurally mm. wrong with the system. That is the nature of our system yeah. right now. And by the way, it's the only restaurant in town and you have to go there. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You have to. You're forced to. <laughs> there's rules that say you have to. Yeah. Um, so she's a technocrat, and we're going to talk about, more about her technocratic outlook in a minute. But when I say she serves the private banks, 
That's exactly what RBA independence or central bank independence is about. Mm. They try and pretend they're independent of the industry as well. That's all rubbish. I have here a couple of pages out of the Australia Institute wrote a very good re, um, uh, submission to the RBA review. And one of their chapters, starting on page 44, RBA too close to the banking and finance sector. And they go through here the examples where this RBA, this manifestation, this, the modern RBA, justifies bank profits, even though Australian bank profits are the highest in the world, right? Mm. Excessive profits. The RBA justifies them. And there's a revolving door between the RBA and the private banks. And that's what you call a captured regulator, mm -hmm. right? So they say, oh, we're independent. Well, you can pretend to be independent all you like, but if you're serving your time at the RBA and then you're going to go and get a high-paying job at a private bank, how tough are you going to be on those private banks, mm. right? This is actually some of the corruption that's at the core of Australia's system. This is what Michelle Bullock right now is presiding over. So when Jim Chalmers is giving up his power and saying, no, no, the responsibility is now entirely on the RBA, I'm not going to intervene, that's who he's giving that responsibility to. So how does... And then, of course, the other aspect, sorry, before I go on, is the Bank for International Settlements, mm. right? And so what happens is all the... And, and um, Sir Montague Norman of the Bank of England started setting up the structure in the 1930s. We're going to have a series on our, on our website about it that Elisa Barwick has written on the history of austerity and how the central banks created this mm. globalised central banking system and it's, it's now centred in the Bank for International Settlements. Um, it should have been shut down after World War II. Yeah, we were just talking about the Nazis earlier. It yeah. should have been shut down for collusion with the Nazis to launder stolen gold from Czechoslovakia. Yeah, 100%. And every country wanted it to, but the British intervened to save it, right? Make sure, no, no, we're, we're going to keep the bank for internet. The Americans wanted to shut it down, but the British intervened to save it. And what the British, what, and, and in fact, we've looked at the structure closely, and from the beginning to this day, the Bank of England uses its influence over the Bank for International Settlements to amplify its power mm. over the global financial system in that way, right? Um, so that's, this is the globalised apparatus. When, when they talk about globalism, this is the mm. real globalism. Yeah. We often make a joke, you know, people don't tune into the Citizens Report and hear us talk about Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum very much because we've been at this game for quite a while and I can tell you when you're however crazy that stuff is, and it's, it's pretty stupid and pretty sick, half of it. but that's not the main game in Switzerland. No. The main city to be concerned about in Switzerland ain't Davos, it's Basel. Yeah. Right? That's where real power over the world is exercised through what comes out of Basel. That's the evil globalism of the world. That's who um, Chalmers is allowing to have total say over our financial system, giving up his ability to intervene. Let's talk about Bullock as a person now. This is the woman um, who said a few months ago, and to say it showed you an insight into her outlook, into her soul, frankly. She said, as casually as you like, because um, the big issue was inflation, she said, oh, we're not going to tame inflation until employment has a four in front of it. In other words, now at the time she said it, the people who reported it put a figure basically saying that what she was saying is unemployment would have to rise by 140,000 people. Mm -hmm. Now, she, Richard, has one target. Her main KPI, key performance indicators, to keep inflation between 2 and 3%. That's her KPI. She claims she has one tool, which is interest rates, mm -hmm. right? And 
She, in her own words, said, we have to, we have to cause 140,000 people at least to lose their jobs. So I, so 140,000 people lose their jobs, probably lose their homes, um, lose cars, whatever, suffer marriage breakdowns, all sorts of stuff. Mm. So I can meet my target. That is the kind of technocratic system that is running Australia right now. Um, that is why the power exists. Yeah. So that Jim Chalmers, because every ever since he's been treasurer, he's got up there every time she's raised her, Philip Lowe and then her have raised rates, and he's looked so unhappy that they've raised rates. Mm. But it's all crocodile tears because he could have done something about it. The power exists now for him to step in and say, no, you will not do that. This is too harsh on the people of Australia. We've never seen such a massive burden of... of of um, uh, interest rate rises so fast in our yeah. history, which is absolutely crushing people, stop it. He had the power to do that. And he said he gets up there and he tries to deflect the blame onto them. He doesn't want you to think he can do anything. And he's so insistent on that, he's going to give up his power to do something about it. Which means, by the way, that he absolutely knew he had those powers all along. Of course. And refuses to you, just so it's clear to, the, to people. He, it, it's not like he didn't know. Yeah. Right? Now... Um, one final thing about Michelle Bullock and her predecessor, Philip Lowe. Both of these people don't have mortgage problems. Mm-hmm. Michelle Bullock and Philip Lowe were both recipients of a special um, uh, employment perk that the Reserve Bank used to offer. It doesn't offer anymore, but there's still 11 employees who, who have it. Um, in the 90s, they received loans from the Reserve Bank, they borrowed from the Reserve Bank for their mortgages at half the interest everyone else was paying. So in 1990, Michelle Bullock borrowed to buy a house and when everyone else was paying 14% interest, she paid 7% interest. And her and her husband paid off their house in nine years. You read statistics to us in our morning briefing this morning about how many, what's the proportion of Australians who think they'll have paid off their mortgage by the time they retire? Uh, I think it was one in seven. One in seven. <laughs> one in, I don't even know, what's that? 10 to, between, less than 15%, right? One in seven Australians are confident they'll have paid off their mortgage by the time they retire. Yet Michelle Bullock was able to do it in nine years thanks to this special loan from the RBA. I mean, these people. And then what was the other thing she said the other day when, when asked about the pain of her, of, of her um, decision making? I should say oh, that's just a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of noise. It's just a lot of noise. People are doing fine. The economy's doing fine. Yeah, you know, everything's not as bad as we thought it would be. And she's just going off the data the banks gave her. She doesn't actually, you know, <laughs> care if she knows she does. She pretends not to. What's actually happening? These what, bloody technocrats. What are these all numbers time. actually mean? They don't. They, well, yeah, that's they're, right. They're, yeah, they are. They're golems. They've got a script in their head written by the Bank of England eighty years ago. So these are people's lives, right now. So here's the point. The powers that they're talking about giving up, they exist for exactly this purpose. They exist so that Treasurer Jim Chalmers could intervene and say, stop crushing families with your rate rises because you're lying when you say, I only have one tool. And we have a really great um, field signs that we put up there. Um, We'll put those pictures up, producer. Uh, um, Jim... Uh, RBA's one tool, Jim Chalmers is the one tool, but Ch- Michelle Bullock said in, a, in an answer to Jared Rennick, Senator Jared Rennick a few months ago, she said, we only have one tool. That is not true. We just read out section 36 and section 50 of the existing, that they want to legislate away are multiple tools they have. Yeah, and by right? the way, she acknowledged that when she was deputy governor. That's right, that's right. 
In response to a question from that same Senator Jared Rennick, yes, if the government said that, we would have to have that conversation. So she has the, t she, um, uh, sorry, Jim Chalmers has the power to step in and say, no, you will not do this. Use your other tools to address inflation. Mm. He has the power to do that. He won't do it. But it could work the other way and it should have worked the other way. So in the 2000s, when house prices started going up and everyone who had a house was really happy about that, of course. But I remember, and I was, might have told this story before, so many Christmas, after a few years of this, I'd go to these Christmas lunches with um, people who were my parents' age and they would have a schizophrenic conversation. The first half of the conversation, they're all boasting about how much their house is worth. The second half of the conversation, they're all whinging about how their kids can't afford to buy a house, right? It was never, this was, this house thing was, was um, uh, uh, what's his name in the gold? The, the, um, the Midas in the gold, right? Mm. Midas was asked, what, 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 you know, what wish do you want? I wish everything I touched to turn to gold. And it was great until his daughter came running to him and he involuntarily mm. gave her a hug and she turned to gold. He went to eat something and it turned to gold right? That's an ancient story that is a lesson for humanity. Don't fall for this rubbish, but we all did. Well, not we, that's why the Citizens Party didn't. Mm. Um, uh, but the government, the Reserve Bank was in on this. They were, they were lowering interest rates down to, effectively got to 0.1% eventually, right? Mm -hmm. To deliberately push up house prices. That's when the government should have stepped in and said, no, stop cutting rates, yep. right? So it never got that crazy. Instead, you had the assistant treasurer telling people, go out and borrow, go out and go borrow. Go out and borrow, go out yeah. and borrow. And back to old Ben Chifley, I just want to read this section of what he said because he talked about the, the, the mentality of the banking system. He goes, um, in times of unhealthy boom conditions, the trading banks are unable individually to check these conditions and collectively they've never attempted to do so. The fact they've never, ever, they've never even made a collective attempt indicates either a belief they cannot do so or that the desire for immediate profit during boom periods overrides any consideration of the national interest. The evidence convinces me that the banks, during some years before the Depression, encouraged unhealthy economic conditions by unsound advancing. They were lending too much into this crazy speculation. That's what he's talking about. During a depression or a feared slump, the banks, in their own interest and to protect their depositors, on whose confidence the bank's prestige and solvency depend, adopt the policy of contraction, not lending, which intensifies the evil. And so that's been chiefly laying out, this is the problem with the banking system. They put out too much money in the boom times and create terrible bubbles. And in the tough times, they pull it back, like interest rate rises now, they crush everybody, yeah. and it should work the other way, Right. So this is the man who legislated the power. He foresaw that the government of the day would let the bank be in charge of the daily day stuff, but if necessary, step in and say, look, you're screwing this up. Stop creating a property bubble. You're going to raise interest rates, not drop them, right? You're not going to go down to 0.1%. And besides, that's bad for the pensioners and that anyway. Keep interest rates normal. And in the case of a situation like this, when the, when the, to meet her KPI on her computer screen, she's willing to put 140,000 people out of work. Jim Chalmers steps in and says, Michelle, sorry, I'm taking charge. Shut up for a while. This is going to be done differently. And by the way, use those other powers you've got. Start lending money into small business people. Let's employ people over here. Let's get, let's get beneficial loans for everyone who lives outside of the capital cities and the major cities. 
in rural Australia. Let's, let's encourage as many people to move out there as possible. You can get 2% home loans. How's that? Go, go live there, right? We'll build high-speed rails to connect it, et cetera. We'll put, you can, the RBA can put money in investment, connect people to the... You can do all these things, but we're not going to crush Australians just because they have debt. And um, uh, Ben Chifley uh, essentially warned against the same thing in this statement um, as well. So this is why this is the fight of and for our lives. The Labor Party fought for nothing harder in its history than the fight, than the power of the people over the banks. And this pygmy, this mental and moral pygmy named Jim Chalmers wants to give it away. But Richard, we have some good news. After this went to a Senate inquiry, was referred to a Senate inquiry, the Weekly Times, it's only shown up in a few publications, but the News Corp ones essentially, reported that Jim Chalmers was actually quite put out that it went to the Senate inquiry. He thought he had a deal with Angus Taylor to get this through before Christmas. Now, we were warning about this in the last month, saying there looks like a stitch-up deal hit Angus Taylor, hit Jim Chalmers. If you made those calls to Chalmers and especially Taylor's office, pat yourself on the back because Taylor has got nervous and wobbly and he's backed off, right? Um, and he, he, their position now is... Uh, we want to see the bill before we support it. And that's why it's gone to the inquiry. And the inquiry gives us a chance to make a big stink about this, but that starts with submissions. That starts with you getting on your email. We'll put the link below. Get on your email. Send an email to that inquiry saying, you must not pass this bill with with the sections repealing Section 11, Section 36, and Section 50 of the RBA um, uh, Act 1959 in there. You must not... Give up this power. You, what did Ann Lawler say? Um, these powers must be used, not removed. Right? That's what you need to tell them. So, um, as our, we're nearly we're nearly out of time here. So I'll stop ranting now. This is this is um, uh, like I said, the last episode uh, before Christmas. But this inquiry will run over Christmas, right? So please prioritize making the submission. And when we come back on the on the twelfth. We will be hammering this point again. We'll do a press release tomorrow, which will be on our website. You'll get more of the details in there. Um, any other final comments? No, I think you pretty much covered it. Okay. Well, um, because it's getting a bit hot and muggy here, and even in Melbourne it warms up at this time of year, I'm actually feeling a bit sweaty. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to wrap it up. Richard, thank you very much for uh, joining us today and, of course, your, your greater role this year. And for your analysis, the um, look for Richard's article on that very fundamental moral question for our nation on the website. Um, thanks to the viewer. We've had a hell of a year. This, the main feature this year was the inquiry into bank branches, which is still ongoing. As you know, the Citizens Party got to testify last week for the first time ever before a Senate inquiry. All that begins and ends with you, the viewer, being prepared to activate. Right? And if you've done that... Um, truly thank you it works we're making a difference we're putting issues on the table that if we didn't do it the two major parties would get together and sweep under the carpet right we are standing in the footsteps of king o'malley john Curtin, ben chifley and the greats um if the labor party wants to deny their own history we will not this is the history of australia and we're going to fight for that legacy because that's the only way to fight for the people of australia so stick with us Thanks for what you've done. Thanks for tuning in. Um, Tune in next year for more action from the Citizens Party and the Citizens Report.
authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.